Well, who is this? That is the question that the disciples asked after Jesus calmed the storm and the seas when they were out in a boat. Who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? It's a growing question throughout the gospel accounts, especially for those in the story who are seeing Jesus do these things and hearing him teach these things. In Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus casts out a demon from a young boy, they say, can this be the son of David? A chapter later, they ask a more skeptical question. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Later in the story, in chapter 22 of Matthew, the question is put to Jesus directly. By what authority do you do what you do? And where did you get this authority? Well, over the last few weeks, Asher's been leading us in a study of a few parables in this part of Scripture, Matthew 21 and 22. And these parables, in many ways, answer that question posed to Jesus by the religious leaders. By what authority do you do what you do? Well, today we're going to continue in this same series and look at more of what Matthew has to say on these matters. Next week, we'll return to our study of the book of Acts. Before Christmas time, we were in the book of Acts, and for about a year before that, and we'll return to it next week with about one-fourth of it left to cover. But today, this week, we want to continue later on in, in Matthew, which further answers the questions posed earlier in this book. Who is this? Can this be the son of David? Where, where does he get his authority? In some ways, this will be a study of what happens next after where we left off last week. In other ways, what I want to do this morning is to zoom out from where we've been, to take a, a broader look at Matthew and to show you how it fits together because it's masterful storytelling that Matthew's giving us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, you know that it's important to study your Bible with sort of a panoramic lens and a zoomed-in lens. And so on a Sunday morning, at times, we will zoom in and we will concentrate on maybe four verses or six or eight verses getting close to the text. And there are other times we want to pull back and see the forest, not just the trees, and to see... The, the broader strokes, which can be as brilliant and as masterful as any of the finer details. I want to point you to five different passages which comprise a, a package in the book of Matthew. The parables that we've been studying over the last few weeks will be one of these five passages. Now, I know that's unusual for us. Normally, we leave off one week in a certain set of verses, and the next week we pick up successively in the next set of verses. Well, we will do that somewhat today, but we'll also zoom out to see what Matthew is doing. In five passages, we'll, we'll see Jesus demonstrating that he's the son of David. We'll see him be questioned about that. 
He'll answer in those parables we've been studying for the last few weeks. Then he'll be challenged again. And then in the end, he will prove from the Old Testament scriptures that he is not only the son of David, but the son of God. And he will silence his opponents. So turn with me to Matthew 20, if you're not there already. Matthew 20. Here at the end of Matthew 20 is the first of these five passages I want to point our attention to. And we could label it this. Several demonstrations that Jesus is the son of David and more. Several demonstrations. I don't know what else to call them. They're actions. They're things Jesus does that show that he's the son of David. There's an emphasis at the end of chapter 20 into chapter 21 that Jesus is the son of David. And at the end of chapter 20, it is two blind men that happen to see it. Two blind men see Jesus better than anyone else around them. Let me read, starting in verse 29 of chapter 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is one of several demonstrations that Jesus is the son of David. And here in this context, he's the son of David that heals. Jesus as the son of David is an idea that goes back at least to 2 Samuel 7. That's the big chapter of promises given to David. And the biggest promise given to David there is that he would have an eternal throne, that God would bless his throne, his kingdom, really it would be God's kingdom, and David would be vice-regent, and he would have an effective and unending throne. Now that's unthinkable, unimaginable when we consider how short-lived most royal dynasties last. They actually don't last very long, two or three hundred or four hundred years would be a really long royal dynasty. But this is a dynasty that goes on forever. And yet these promises get tested throughout the Old Testament. They find themselves in tension at various times. Sometimes a Davidic king isn't very good or isn't very godly. And there are even times when there isn't a Davidic king at all. During the exile, there's no temple, there's no royal palace, and there's no one who's called the king of Israel or the king of Judah. You read psalms like Psalm 89. That would be one that mourns the promises given to David not coming to fruition yet. Or Psalm 132. These are psalms which recount back to God his promises about David 
in sort of wonder aloud whether he's forgotten about them, whether he's letting them fall to the ground. Again, so the tension grows throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the tension gets higher when prophets come along, and they not only repeat the promises that were given to David in 2 Samuel 7, they enlarge those promises. They talk about an age to come when the son of David comes, and it's going to be a glorious, blessed age. He will shepherd God's people in glorious and unimaginable ways. He will forgive sin, and he will cleanse and heal, and he will restore, and he'll bring peace. The tension reaches a fever pitch, and then the New Testament opens. The very beginning of our New Testament, Matthew, the very beginning of his book, begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Mary was told by the angel, He will be great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. There it is, 2 Samuel 7, the eternal Davidic throne being fulfilled, not by a successive line of Davidic sons that never ends, no, but by finally one coming along who was himself eternal, and he rightly ascends to the throne to reign forever. Jesus is that Davidic son. The blind men see it. No one else around them does. And they see that this son of David can heal, which isn't a real common concept in the Old Testament. You've got the son of David who's going to be king, and he'll conquer. And then you have some other verses about someone who's going to come along eventually and he will, well, he'll heal the blind. But these blind men put these things together. Almost no one in these days was putting these things together. The streams are crossing. In Ghostbusters, it's bad when the streams cross, but, but in the Bible with Jesus, all the streams cross, and you got to see them going together. And that was a problem for many in Jesus' day. They didn't see streams crossing. They thought that there would be a son of David who would come as a warrior king, and he would conquer the current Goliath called Rome. And then there's some other stuff about one to come who will bring peace and proclaim good news and bind up the wounded and heal the sick and restore sight to the blind. Well, these two blind men put these things together remarkably well. And somehow, we don't know how, somehow they know this is the son of David, the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ. We could move on into chapter 21, where we see Jesus, the son of David, who marches into Jerusalem triumphantly, bringing peace. Just glance down, chapter 21, Asher's been pointing us back to this here and there. It's the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem on 
a donkey. He deliberately fulfills Scripture. Notice that. He quotes verse 5. This is from Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus deliberately fulfills Old Testament scripture about the coming king. He enters Jerusalem as a victorious, humble, peace-giving king would. And then if you, at least in my Bible, you turn the page, still in chapter 21, as he comes in on this colt, the crowds fulfill scripture. They quote in verse 9, they're quoting Psalm 118, as they say, Hosanna to the, what is it? To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus then goes into Jerusalem and up to the temple and he speaks a word of judgment. This is the son of David who can judge wayward leaders. The religious leaders have gone astray, and Jesus rebukes them for it. Remember, this is when he turns over the tables, chapter 21, verses 12 and following. And all this commotion, notice in verse 15 and 16, leads to a little bit of a dispute with these religious leaders it says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Jesus is the son of David who receives praise. Now this is all very lofty, and it raises a question. So secondly, we've been seeing this in recent weeks, a crucial question. By verse 23, the crucial question is, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? What things they have in mind? Well, we just reviewed them. Marching into Jerusalem like you're a king. Turning over tables in the temple. Pronouncing judgment on wayward leaders. Uh, cursing a, a fruitless fig tree because it symbolizes these, these fruitless leaders. And receiving praise from the people. By what authority does Jesus do these things? That's a crucial question because if he isn't from God, then he isn't the son of David at all. And he has no right to march into town like he's fulfilling Zechariah 9. He has no right to receive acclamation from the people with Psalm 118 in the air. He has no right to receive the title son of David as he did from the crowd and as he did from the formerly blind men. But if he is the son of David, the promised one, then he has divine authority and that changes everything. So what does Jesus say 
in response to the question, where does this authority come from? If you glance down in your Bibles, there's a bit of text before you get to the next section. And if you read carefully, Jesus says at first that he's not going to give them an answer. Chapter 21, verse 27. But then he goes on to give somewhat an indirect but clear enough answer to that question. He answers the question in three parables. So thirdly, a third passage, three parables on sonship. Again, these have been the focus of the last few weeks, and so I won't retrace our steps. I only want to point out to you that the three parables, though they each have their own message and purpose, they all have to do with sons. The first is a parable of two sons. One's legitimate, the other one isn't. The next parable has to do with a landowner whose son was killed. And then there's a parable of a king who throws a wedding party for his son. Remember, son of David, that's where this started. Now parables about sonship. Jesus is essentially addressing who is a son and who is not a son. Jesus is saying the religious leaders are not sons of God. And Jesus is the true Son of God. And so where does his authority come from? It comes from God. He's the Son. He was sent by God. Yes, he'll be rejected and killed, but that's the plan. His rejection, as Asher showed us. According to Psalm 110, his rejection's all part of the plan for him to become the cornerstone. And on this cornerstone, God will build a whole new people, no longer determined or limited by ethnicity or by moral relativism. No, the invitation's going out far and wide to new places and to low people. So now what determines who's in and who's out or who's on the cornerstone or who's crushed by it is what you do with the sun. Do you see the sun as the sun or is he just a threat to your own little kingdom? Will you respond to the invitation to come or will you respond with indifference? or outright opposition. The religious leaders are proving which one they are, even though they understand that Jesus is talking about them. So now we can move on to new material. Chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his work. This introduces a fourth passage now. Three questions to trap. Three questions by religious leaders which are meant to trap. There are various religious groups, Pharisees and Sadducees especially, and from these different groups will come representatives who will come to Jesus with a a throwdown, a theological dilemma that they think will stump him and therefore discredit him. The three rounds of questions and answers with Jesus are something like playing baseball with Jesus. 
These religious leaders are going to pitch questions at Jesus, thinking that he won't be able to hit them. The Pharisees are going to try to throw their best change up. And Jesus is going to hit it out of the park. And then a new picture will be put in from the Sadducees. And he's got a slider with a little bit, a little bit of Vaseline on it. He's dirty. And then a third picture is going to come in, and it's just heat straight down the middle. And Jesus hits it all. It's no problem for Jesus. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of these theological issues. A few years ago, we studied the book of Mark together, and we took each of these three matters that are raised by religious leaders, and then Jesus answers or addresses. Uh, We took a, a week on each one of those. And so if you want to explore the theological issues that are raised in these in these questions from the religious leaders to Jesus, I'd encourage you to look for our series back in 2015 uh, from Mark 12, where we dealt with them a little more slowly than today. Today, what I want to emphasize is the big picture. So so here's the, the first question. Here's the first pitch. Should God's people pay taxes to Caesar? We'll read this one. We won't read the others. Verse 16 And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax, and they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Now Jesus's pithy saying, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, was absolutely revolutionary at the time, and has since shaped Western civilization. Jesus' answer is massively important. It's worth studying. It's worth pondering. It's worth applying to our contemporary context. But don't miss the broader point of what's happening here. The religious leaders thought they were stumping Jesus with a no-win question. You know, when did you stop beating your wife? There's, There's no right answer to that. And they think that they have something like that in this question. But Jesus, just off the top of his head, gave one of the most important and most influential sentences that have ever been spoken. Psalm 2 foresaw that God's Messiah would be plotted against, and futilely so. The kings of the earth 
set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what we're seeing in these pages. And Psalm 2 goes on to say, But the Lord laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will set his king on his holy hill. He will have his way. He will exalt his son. Isaiah 11 promised that the one to come from the line of David, well, he, let me just read it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's easy for us to overlook the wisdom of Christ. And how important that is. Jesus is not stumped by anyone. He only stumps. Next picture. Will there be marriage in heaven? Now, I won't read this. It's a little more complicated than that simple question. Will there be marriage in heaven? Someone puts it to Jesus like this. What if someone had seven legitimate marriages? Husbands just kept dying. And she didn't kill him, by the way. She kept marrying. She kept having husbands. Whose wife will she be in heaven? Jesus simply answers, there won't be marrying in heaven. Now, if that greatly troubles you, let me again remind you that there's a whole message devoted to that from a series we did a few years ago in Mark 12. Go look for that. I won't really try to defend Jesus at this point. He simply solves the problem by telling them there won't be marriage in heaven. But notice what he does on a grander scale. They think they've stumped Jesus, and Jesus responds with heavenly insight, literally. He has insider knowledge of relationships of human beings in heaven because he's from there, because that's home, because he's God, because he's eternal. He didn't go to the Old Testament for his answer. You would look in vain. He didn't just reason it out. He knew somehow about human relationships in heaven on a level that isn't in our Bibles other than when it records Jesus telling us. Isn't that remarkable? So they threw hard down the plate, but Jesus whacked it out of the park. One more pitch. What is the greatest commandment? What will Jesus do with this? This is a, this is a fastball right down the middle. But it is meant to test him, verse 35 says. And you can see the usefulness of this kind of question if you're trying to trap Jesus. I mean, how could one commandment of God be greater than other commandments? Are, are, are some optional? Are some like sub-commandments without the authority of God? No. 
But Jesus says in response that the whole law can be summarized in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who can argue with that? No one dares try. Even today, very few people will doubt that those are a a good summary as long as you believe in God. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Three carefully thrown pitches, three home runs. Now it's Jesus' turn to pitch. I know there weren't out, so it doesn't make sense that it's a new inning. That's where my illustration falls apart. Let's acknowledge it. All right. Now fifth, the fifth passage. There's one question from Jesus which silences his opponents. The question is, how is the Christ both David's son and David's Lord? Look down, chapter 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He turned the tables, you see this? Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the the going answer. I mean, this is the Bible's answer on it. It's the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Psalm 110, there David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? We can stop there for now. Notice that we're back to the son of David. That's where we started. You see how these stories hang together and how Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is masterful at stringing these things together. Of course, Jesus is as well. He's the one leading the conversation most of the time. Jesus is the son of David. That's been proven. And he's also son of God. That's now been stated. That's what, really what he was getting at with the parables, right? He is God's son. We also read it earlier, if we were reading Matthew straight through, we would find it Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. The Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hears the same thing. And so do Peter and John and, and the other one, whatever his name is. It's escaping me right now. Three of them get to see the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And they hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So let's answer the question that the religious leaders put to Jesus. By what authority are you doing all these things? Oh, with the authority of heaven, with the authority of God, with the authority of Holy Scripture. Jesus makes his case with a question from Psalm 110. They're quoted in verse 44. Just FYI, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 10, which is what we have here in verse 44, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's everywhere. It's a big deal. It's part of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. 
David wrote Psalm 110, and in these seemingly enigmatic words, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, and then goes on to say something about David's son, a future king. Let's just try to parse that. God, the Lord, said something to David's Lord. Who is David's Lord? David's the king. David's the man. Who's greater than David other than God? How can David's son also be David's Lord? That doesn't work, especially in ancient cultures. Fathers didn't call their sons Lord. On on the Death Star, there's only one Lord Vader, right? He doesn't call anyone else Lord. And so you can see the dilemma unless Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. Unless he's born of David's line and he is David's God. Make no mistake, Jesus is inferring that he is God. And either that's true or it's blasphemy. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, and I've quoted many times, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. End of quote. We need more than Jesus' wisdom. We need more than Jesus' teaching. We, we need more than Jesus' insights about heaven and taxes and even the priority of commandments. We need more. We need a person. We need God. Christianity is different in this regard than any other religion. Any other religion the teaching can be detached from whatever person was the leader of it. Not with Christianity. It's not just a teaching. It's not just a system. It's a person. It's Christ. He's the God-man. We get this not just from Psalm 110, but even other parts of the Old Testament. Like in Isaiah 7, the virgin will give birth to a son... And you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A son will be born, a human, and it'll be God with us. The religious leaders, they don't seem to get what Jesus is getting at, or if they do, they don't want to bother with it. It's hard to read exactly what's going on. We just simply know they had no response to it. 
Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They had no more questions. They had no answer. And yet it didn't mean that they believed. In fact, two days after this, they will seek Jesus' arrest and then his crucifixion. They will trump up charges. They will rile up a mob. They will partner with the Romans and they will watch him be crucified. But it's Psalm 2 all over again, isn't it? The leaders, the kings, the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's his plan. It's his plan. <clears throat> it's his plan that he, he would be rejected. And it's his plan that he would rise. It's his plan that he would live. His death wasn't just unfortunate or just a, an example of how to turn the other cheek. If you look back at Matthew 20, you see the reason for Jesus going to the cross. Matthew 20, verse 28, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment, a payment for sin. The payment was made. We know that. The resurrection proves that the payment for sin was received. Jesus intercedes. We need more than just a man. We need more than just God coming. God with us is not necessarily good news for sinners unless God be for us, unless Jesus died for us. Do you know that? I ask you today, if you're not a Christian, what, what do you say about Jesus? Do you have an answer to Jesus' question? Do you have more questions for him? Because he can answer them. Can't you see that? He can answer them. It doesn't mean there will never be mystery. No, but the Bible has many, many answers. Keep asking your questions. And then come to a decision. At some point, see this man as either a hoax or son of David, son of God, God in the flesh, the sacrifice for sins. Don't just see him aright, but believe on him. Embrace him. Call out to him. Receive him. Dare we say, love him. Remember, that was one of these Topics in recent conversation in this chapter. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And Jesus says, he's the Lord. So love him. Love him. Be saved. Be forgiven. Call out to him. Christian, if we have done that, if we believe that he is who he says he is and he did what he said he was going to do, and we have forgiveness. And we have a Savior who reigns. He's been exalted to the right hand of God because He is God. He's, he's on our side. The one who is Lord of everything. 
the one who is the fulfillment, the one who is the answer, is our friend. That's a biblical word. Our friend. He's for us. Romans 8 marvels. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his son but gave him up for us all, won't he now also with him give us all things, all things we need? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus died and, more than that, was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Trials? Opposition? Persecution? No, and all these things were more than conquerors. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for what he has done for us in Jesus, the Son, the Lord, God in the flesh. Praise God for what he has revealed to us in this book. Praise God. For him breathing words, revealing glory, and revealing this glorious gospel of Jesus as Lord, dying in our place, being raised in the third day, and reigning now forever. Praise God for the promises of what's still to come. He reigns right now. And we don't see that always. It doesn't seem like it sometimes. But one day we'll see it. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. One day the things that are invisible will become visible. One day the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our God. That's great hope. Praise God for his present reign and for him interceding for us. Praise God for unshakable promises. Praise God for the Holy Spirit indwelling us as a down payment of what's to come. And praise God for little things. It might seem little, but it's not. Like the meal of remembrance that Jesus gave us that night before he was betrayed. It's in Matthew 26, verse 26. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, He broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus instituted this meal with with his disciples for all his disciples to come after to occasionally get together and remind each other with breaking of bread as a symbol of his torn body and the drinking of wine or juice as a symbol of his spilled blood. It's a reminder to us that our hope is outside ourselves. It's something he has done and it's done. And it's something we simply receive. And we have to keep on believing We don't lose it, 
But we do have to keep on believing and seeing our need for it. And so we remember through this meal, this little meal, the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus' life and through his blood and how we need it, how we need forgiveness. And oh, how great his forgiveness is.